Hi, everybody. This is Lee. I'm here with Jerry and Bob. We're One New Man Ministries. We are Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles. That's Christians, lovers of Yeshua HaMashiach. That's Jesus Christ. And we're a ministry of reconciliation. And we just want to understand the meaning of Ephesians 2, where it says that we have been brought together through the body of Christ, crucified on the cross, which tore down the dividing walls of uh, the dividing wall of hostility and has gotten rid of the enmity between those Jews and those Gentiles, all in the name of Jesus, and that we're being made together into the dwelling place of the Lord and to one new man individually and one new man together, the body of Christ. And what we do is we study the Old Testament, that's the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and we work through them the way that Jewish people study them, a Parsha, which is several chapters every week with a Haftor that's been assigned to that, and then the New Testament portion that's been assigned to it by the Messianic Bible Study Group. And uh, that's what we're studying, and we try to look at it from the point of view of Yeshua. So what are we studying today, Jerry? Our portion begins with a discussion about vows, and it is in uh, Numbers chapter 30. And so I thought we could spend a little bit of time talking about vows because it is a subject that Yeshua picks up in his Sermon on the Mount. And so I thought it would be useful to learn what the Old Testament uh, teaches about it in the law and then to think about how Yeshua applies this to our lives uh, today. So in Numbers chapter 30, it talks about... Uh, <clears throat> Verse 1, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So <clears throat> the uh, difference between a vow and an oath, uh, we see from, uh, from this portion here. And then when we read some things, especially in uh, Hebrews where it talks about how God took a vow and swore an oath because he could swear by no hire, he swore by himself. So a vow tends to be something that I uh, make between myself and God, and it can be to keep back from participating in something that's lawful, or it can be adding to something that has already been prescribed by the law. So if the law prescribes 10%, I make a vow that I'll bring 15%. So those would be vows that I make between myself and the Lord. Oaths, I think, are to bind ourselves by pledge to one another, like Jacob and Laban did, as an example. So that we, we bind ourselves to one another and we invoke God's name, perhaps. It wasn't necessary, but uh, to, to seal an oath, you, you would commit it to God. Uh, you and I pledge to... Um, help one another deliver groceries uh, or to, to uh, paint your house, whatever it happens to be. 
uh, and, and we, we say we're going to do this for one another, and God is witness to us, right? And so that would be an oath. So what's interesting then is he says he shall not break his word. Uh, in the ESV, it says break his word. Uh, the Hebrew word there is literally to desecrate it, to pollute your word. Uh, and how do you pollute your word? By not doing what you said you would do. So the whole idea of, of being men or women of integrity who keep our words is actually a very biblical notion. And there are clearly cultures in the world today that teach lying is perfectly acceptable uh, to your enemies, for instance. Uh, here, God is teaching us because he is truth. He expects truth from his people. And when we don't keep our words, we are literally corrupting it. We are desecrating it. We are defiling it. Right? That's the idea here. So it's a very serious, serious business to make a vow between myself and God. It's a very serious, serious business to invoke God as my witness when I pledge on oath to to be faithful in some, some matter that we decide between us. Uh, it's one of the reasons why marriage vows are so significant and so, so uh, solemn, I think is a good word to describe it, because we are swearing an oath to our brides or to our grooms. We are not only swearing that oath between the two of us, but we've called together a company of witnesses. And in the church, at least still in synagogues, uh, we are calling upon God as well to be our witness to what we are about to, to, to say. And then to go back on, on that is, you know, the world may take it lightly nowadays, but I don't think in the spirit world, God is, is uh, winking at it. You know, right. it's a serious business. And so, you know, it, it's, it, it leads Malachi later on in, in, in God's name prophetically to say, I hate divorce because it is, vow-breaking. It, it is oath-breaking. It is calling God to witness something that I have now rejected. Right. So it explains then the rules for women in particular. But before go before ahead. we go on, Jerry, so, you know, last, uh, last week we were talking about God being a jealous <laughs> God, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and how, you know, Yeshua represented being both God and man, God being jealous for us, you know, pursuing us, and as man, what it looks like to have zeal for God. Yeshua represents both, right? And it's interesting, you know, I was asking you before the show started about a vow and the third commandment when it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And, you know, this, this, this word in vain, really, it seems to be saying that if you make a vow, a solemn promise to consecrate something to God or to do something in his service or honor... <clears throat> And, and, you know, you make, you take that in vain, you, you take 
that promise you break your word or profane your word, the violation of that vow. It's an offense before God. And, uh, it's, and it says, whatever a man has promised unto God, that must he fulfill. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain, I think. And, you know, I in a way, um, you know, as a Jewish person, before I came to know the, the grace of God through Yeshua, by grace I've been saved through faith, and it is the gift of God, and I was trying to work my way you know, and, 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 you know, that it, making vows, I'm going to change, God, these besetting sins. I'm going to change. I never change. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I do think that that ate at my conscience, and I just never had a sense of peace, you know, that, that of being forgiven because I knew I was a hypocrite. I'd go to temple on Yom Kippur. I'd pray for, you know, forgiveness and for atonement, I'd leave, I'd make the same sins over and over. Break my vows. I'm Mm going to change God. Break my vows. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think, you know, that through God's mercy and grace, through Yeshua, you know, by repenting, confessing and repenting those sins and receiving the mercy from the cross it's it's a different type of forgiveness you know now i do feel forgiven but of vowing on my own power by mm. myself to make a change well that i think is the difference between reformation and transformation uh we often embark on on uh reformation projects you know people vow every uh new year's that they're going to lose weight that's 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 reforming you know uh i'm i'm going to change this about myself i'm going to change i'm going to turn over a new leaf those are all reformation projects we're going to reform ourselves the effort and the strength to do that is all from within ourselves transformation is what god does amen you know i just read a thing about a scripture the um the flesh the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I think that kind of summarizes the point. Well, one, one of my favorite verses, and I touch on it in my mind almost every morning, is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you by the mercies of God, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Yes. Made holy and acceptable to God through grace. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind so that you no longer are conformed or shaped or squeezed into the world's shape, the world's mold, so that you will be able to test and approve what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's the, the project that God calls us to, not reformation, not turning over new leaves in our own power, but each day to come to him and offer ourselves up as living sacrifices and say, Lord, my mind needs to be transformed. I need your work in my mind so that the world cannot shape me into its way of thinking, right? And so that's what you really describe is, you know, we go, we go to shul, we go to temple, and we, we, we go through the rituals and we make the vows and we want to do better. But until we have been born again and the Spirit comes to live within us, Amen. we are not changed. Can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian <laughs> change his skins? No. 
but God can. <laughs> right. Right? And praise God, that's, that's, that's really what uh, we're going to get to with, with uh, uh, our, our New Testament portion in a moment. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to lead into it. The idea of, of taking God's name in vain, though, I, I, the more we talk about it, the more serious I think it becomes in my mind. You know, when we first started, I was a little fuzzy about where you were going with that. But it's the idea of to, to take it in vain is to treat it lightly. And, and, and to treat it lightly is almost as if to say, God, I'm, I'm going to say your name, but I don't think you can do anything. I don't think it's going to make any difference. Uh, it demonstrates in some way a lack of faith, uh, a lack of, of real um, trust and understanding in who God is and what he says he will do. It's dishonoring. Yes. And I and I and I think, you know, the order of it being the third commandment is really dem- demonstrates what you're saying because he says, I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. You shouldn't you know, don't make idols, mm-hmm. don't bow down to them, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know, it it is it flows from this position that God is not just the source of creation. He is the I am. The <laughs> well, the name is, is Hashem, the name. Uh, and, of course, it would be the third. I mean, after he establishes, uh, I'm the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me, and then he, to invoke his name, Psalm 138 says uh, in verse 2, you have exalted above all things your name and your word, right? Above everything else is God's name because the name is the verbalization of who he is, right? It is, it is a powerful name. Um, we invoke his name to, to uh, establish spiritual authority, uh, you know, it, it, we, we are called to pray to the Father in the name of the Son. Um, so, yes, we, we want to be careful about all situations uh, where we take God's name lightly, where we take it in vain, where we disregard uh, in some way or other uh, treating, treating other people, uh, situations in ways and invoking God that are not in line with who God is and how he operates. You, you mentioned uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus talked about not making uh, oaths. Or mm-hmm. where, where is that, Jerry? So in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus takes up this subject. He sa- so let's, let's set the stage here in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, He begins with the uh, Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Whoa, where'd that come from, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then he tells them they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Then he goes into the part about the law. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. And to fulfill does not mean to bring an end to them. But in order to show their full import, in order to draw out the difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law, this is what he means when he says, I came to fulfill them. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law till all is accomplished. Then he tells us, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So then he launches into a few different specific explications of the law and how it has been mishandled and how it is rightly handled by the Son of Man and his followers. He talks about anger that, you know, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I say to you, if you're just angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. You've heard it said about adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery. If you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. So he's drawing out the distinction between the outward performance and the inward intention. And he says the inward intention is just as guilt producing and just make, makes you just as guilty as if you had actually done the deed, right? Because God knows where your heart is. God knows where your heart is, exactly. So then he makes the same application about divorce. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a, divorce, a certificate. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So he has these, these specific examples of how he came to fulfill the law that he's drawing out of the law. Then he gets to oaths in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you've heard it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make a hair, one hair, white or black. <laughs> and let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so what he is uh, talking about is the practice of his day and how people would invoke God uh, to prove that they really meant what they said they were going to do. So there was that problem then of, of people's words not being good enough at face level. The other issue, Jesus uh, draws on this, this practice called uh, Corban. Corban is, is a word that we've actually run into in Hebrew earlier. It's, it's the gift, okay? And so they would, somebody would have a sum of money that they would make a gift to the temple uh, in the future. In the present, though, it was a way to avoid spending that <coughs> money to care for people, even people as close to you as your parents. So Jesus is, is, um, is striking back at 
current cultural practices when he talks about the way they're using oaths to benefit themselves, to avoid real obligations, to uh, bring God into things that are less than what God would approve. And so he's saying, you know what, you have so corrupted the whole notion, let's just throw it all out and say your yes be yes and your no be no. So, so you know, in this idea of if if you hate someone, it's committing murder. If you look at a woman with lust, it's committing adultery. I, I think that it thirty five thirty six says, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Mm-hmm. And then it says earlier, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So I, I think what he's saying is that to rely on oneself, to take an oath, to think that one has power or authority is where the sin is at Mm -hmm. and it really comes back to this idea we've been beating around the last few shows about denying oneself and you know and i think this is what gets back to this issue that we're reading in numbers about you know to break your word a solemn a vow a solemn promise when you consecrate something to god or to do something in his service or honor and the violation of that vow is an offense before God, Jesus is saying, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't go around making vows because you're probably not going to keep it, you know, (laughs) and then you're going to, then it comes from evil, you know. He is definitely connecting to that sentence that we talked about, uh, don't desecrate your word, right, by not doing according to what you say. The other idea is uh, that by saying, I swear by the temple that you are like <coughs> adding extra emphasis, boy, I really, really mean it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this sort of legalistic approach to, to vows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe even the idea that if I didn't say by the temple, then I could weasel my way out of it later on. That might be part of the oh. issue that Jesus is talking about here, too. Not just the, 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 the words on the front end, but if, if I didn't use the exact formula, then I'm not really bound by it. In that way, it, it kind of gets around to the divorce thing, because remember, uh, when Mark deals with divorce, it comes up as a question, can I divorce my wife for any reason? Right? And so uh, the, it, it had grown up that for really for the for the flimsiest of reasons you know she didn't please me when she made uh supper the other night or it's it's an ongoing thing how she she's always burning what i like to eat uh kind of situations where people were were divorcing for frivolous reasons in order to go after someone they now desired more basically right so it's maybe the same kind of legalistic approach to how we handle the law in order to get out of something or to get something that I might not ordinarily have gotten any other way. This this bending the law to to my advantage. Um, 
And then really what, what it gets around to is this whole issue at the bottom of the discussion is you are looking at the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Right. The spirit of the law in vows really is that word, make sure you do what you say you're going to do. That's the spirit of the law. Now, we can devise all of these other legalistic well, that, that, rules. So, but, the, but the problem is, right, as human beings, we make vows and then we break them over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I'd turn it around and say the spirit is when you make a vow to God and you don't keep it, you're treating the name of God and your relationship with God as something is being in vain, you know, and and, and you're not appropriately va- valuing God. You're you're not appropriately valuing your relationship with God. It's not you know correctly ordered there, mm-hmm. and um, and I think that's why you know Philippians three and 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 Paul really you know is put with this because you know. He's saying living, living, you know, he, he's lived a lot of life, right? He's been a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's done all these things. But in the end, it's to be in Christ and is his goal. And I think Jesus is, is warning us about our self relying on ourselves and our vows and our oaths. And he's really saying, you know, yes, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your word, but don't desecrate the name of the Lord by making a vow or the temple or Jerusalem, you know. There's a sense, though, if we're if we're completely honest, uh, that in one way or another, every time we sin, every time we break faith with God, we've really broken a vow, because when we came to faith in Yeshua, we said, uh, "I am yours. I'm going to follow you." And all sin, in one way, can be understood as I stepped off the path here. I'm not following Jesus. So in, in that sense, you know, we, we've, we've made this big vow uh, at, the, at the moment that we came to faith in, in Yeshua that says, you're my Lord and I'm going to follow you. And we have these times in our lives then where we, ha- we break that vow. And it is a serious thing. But I think that what we have to have to come back to is if we are tender hearted towards God and are sorrowful for our sin and repentant, then we have to we have to account for the overwhelming love and grace of God because he has adopted us. He has <coughs> made us his children he has committed himself to us in love and when i sin when i 
follow my flesh instead of the spirit. He's grieved, absolutely. And in those moments, I have taken the name of my God lightly. I have treated the crucifixion as if it meant nothing to me in that moment. But praise God for grace, Amen. right? Because we're, we're all in that place. What God is looking for, you know, um, what, how does David put it in Psalm 51? Uh, a contrite heart, right? Um, John writes, if, if we say we have no sin, we're not telling the truth. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the fact is, as many times as I fall in the mud, every time that I confess that God is faithful to clean me off and put me on the path and, you know, this is, this is the process that we're all in, this sanctification, this growing in grace, this growing in faith, this growing in the Spirit. It is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, we talked about it already, of being transformed to, to, to be shaped and minded like Christ, to no longer be shaped and conformed by the world. And, you know, the testimony of people who've <coughs> walked with Christ for a long time, and I don't say this in pride, but I am confident that I am a much better, more godly man today than I, I was when I first started. I, there are things that I did and said that when I was young in the Lord that appall me now, uh, that I can't believe I acted that way, I can't believe I said that thing. And that's not to say I still don't do some appalling or say some appalling things today, but their frequency <laughs> is, is a lot less. And that's not because of me, but that's the grace of God at work in me. And when I say me, I mean every, every believer, everybody who is, is determined to, to really be serious about what it means to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Uh, that is the way through death to life, right? Correct. The uh, Philippians passage that you're referring to is chapter 3, and that is the passage that talks about um, <clears throat> the, 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 the famous verse in, in Philippians 3, 12 to 20 is, uh, forgetting what's behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press forward to the prize. And he pictures um, that final crossing over into eternity as the prize. But it's an upward call that we can search for and run after now. Paul talks about it in Colossians. He talks about it as mortify the flesh and seek those things that are above where, where Christ is seated. So there's a lot of different ways the, 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 the New Testament pictures this, this moment. But it is preceded by Paul's discussion of his own life before Christ and all of the worldly attainments that he had achieved. And then how when he met Yeshua, or how Yeshua confronted him, at that point he considered all of his worldly attainments rubbish. 
garbage, loss is a polite way of saying uh, th this was all garbage before. What I ha was thinking recently, uh, this passage where he's talking about, uh, I used to be a Pharisee, of, I was raised a Pharisee of the Pharisees, uh, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, born, circumcised on the eighth day, uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And that's a pretty astonishing uh, <laughs> statement to make about yourself. Uh, Especially after he said he was a person. <laughs> well, exactly. I, you know, it occurs to me that in some ways this is exactly what Jesus was driving at in the Sermon on the Mount. As far as keeping the law and being zealous for righteousness according to the law, as it was understood and practiced, he was blameless. Hmm. But he failed in what we were just talking about, the spirit of the law. And he, he drives that point home in Romans chapter 7. He's talking about the law and who, he, what, you know, uh, I thought I had everything going together until the law came and convicted me. The law said, thou shalt not covet. Hmm. Because the first nine, in one way or another, you can sort of do all of those in an outward fashion. But number 10, thou shalt not covet, is a heart issue. And he completely read that wrong up until the point that he was converted, right? And then he recognized his blame. So anyway, uh, he, this, is, this is an interesting passage to think about today because identity is such a big discussion and who gets to identify you and w what is my identity and... Paul is saying, I had an identity, but when Christ came along, he's the Lord, he gave me identity. Yeah. He says, he says, for it is we, in, 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 in uh, Philippians 3, 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, who work in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, and then he says, even though I, too, have reason for confidence mm -hmm. in the flesh. And then skipping ahead to uh, verse 8, it says, <clears throat> For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and regard them as ru rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through fight, faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, you know, he, he says, you know, here that myself is dung and what I'm looking for is... If I may attain the resurrection, the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may obtain the resurrection from the dead, the regeneration to be a new man from the old man that he mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the conversation is about uh, people who are coming in and trying to subvert the gospel by adding legalistic requirements specifically you can't you can't really enter into life in jesus without being circumcised in the flesh 
there was a group of people who were going out teaching that. And that's what he says. Look out in verse two. Look out for the dogs, who looked out. Uh, look at those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about circumcision. And then he says, we are the circumcision. And he doesn't bring it in here, but we read several times in the Old Covenant about needing to be circumcised in heart. And then that circumcised heart comes up in Romans chapter 4, talking about Abraham, I believe. Uh, but here he says, now he's talking to all followers of Yeshua. We are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. We've gone beyond the, the letter of the law to the Spirit. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in our Messiah, Yeshua. We have no confidence in the flesh. As opposed to these who are saying, if you really want to get in good with God, if you want to really enter into his true righteousness, this is what you have to do to, the, to your flesh. Okay, uh, if you carry out this legalistic procedure, then God will really accept you. He's saying, no, we have no confidence in any of that stuff. If anybody would have confidence, look at me. And he rattles off all of his attainments, his place in life, his place in the Jewish community. He says, all that, all that stuff that I had in the flesh, garbage, garbage. Wow. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth I mean, think about, think, think about what he's, he's doing. He, he's asking us to consider the value of things, right? Amen. Here is the value of what you have accomplished as a human being. In its place, God offers you the value of his son in glory, right? And he says, which do you prefer? What do you really value? In pride, too many of us humans want to keep saying, I can do it. Look at what I've done. I can do more. Or will you value to the surpassing worth of Yeshua? That I, you know, there, there's, there's an old illustration about, you know, uh, if, if, if you offer little, little children a shiny quarter or a crumpled old dollar, they're going to be more attracted to the shiny quarter, right? But the dollar is worth more. Good analogy. And and this is what Paul's talking about here, I think, this, here's what I traded in. And, you know, depending on your point of view, it looks really good. But I'm telling you, this Yeshua stuff, this is what is really valuable. Because through him then, that I may be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Messiah. The righteousness that is bestowed by God. And, and by righteousness, let's, let's get it straight. We don't mean sinless perfection. <laughs> by righteousness, we mean that God grants us right standing with him on the basis of what Yeshua has done, as opposed to our trying to achieve a right standing with God on the basis of what we try to do for him through religious practice or anything else. We're trying, faith in Yeshua is the opposite of saying, God, you've got to take me because look at everything I did. Faith in Yeshua says, God, you've got to take me because of everything he did. Okay, so, so that's what Paul is saying. Uh, I, the righteousness, I want the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God depends on faith. And so as a result of all of that, he says his desire is to know Yeshua. And that word is, is, indicates real intimacy 
to, to, to be in, in close contact, fellowship, communion, to, to know his mind, to know his thoughts, to, to, to see, you know, when, when, when you love people and you really know them, you can just see something in their face and you know what to do or what to say. And, and to be in that kind of intimate relationship with Jesus where, where you, you know him. And then the power of his resurrection. And this goes to um, that prayer that he has back in Ephesians verse 19, he's been praying for a while now, and now he says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is the same thing he's talking about here. We talked about it last week or the week before, that raising the head, the body follows, that we are all currently seated in the heavenly places with Christ. That's what he says at the beginning of Ephesians. And so that power that raised Christ and all of Christ's followers at the same time, that power that overcame death, that power that overcame all of the clutching claws of hell, trying to drag us back, that power that threw it all off like Samson laughing at the, at the ropes, remember? <laughs> if you tie me up with ropes, I'll be like any man. And Okay, guys, come on in and tie him up. And he just burst that apart. Well, that's what Jesus did to death. And all of the demons who desired to hold him down. Hmm. Right? That power, that's what Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And to share in his sufferings. And this is just an amazing amazing thing. What Paul is saying, though, that we don't enter into power without going through suffering. We don't enter into life without going through death. We can't enjoy resurrection power unless we have taken up our own cross and put ourselves on it. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, right? And so that's what he's talking about, this whole nexus of events here. And then the, the, this, this, this passage that we were kind of aiming at and took us a long time to get here. He says, regarding this resurrection, I have not already obtained it. I am not already perfect, or I, the, this word perfect uh, is an interesting word. I have not yet reached the goal is really the idea behind that word. Uh, it's, it's a word that signifies getting to the terminal, getting to the end point, reaching the goal that we had. And so he says, I have not already gotten there, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And I, we talked about uh, maybe tying this to the situation in Numbers. If you recall <clears throat> in Numbers, God has called them to the land of Canaan beyond the Jordan. And Numbers chapter 33 says, here they are, they're coming up close now to the promised land, and they're in the plains of Moab, and it says that at that point, Reuben and Gad lifted up their eyes and saw that the place was good. And as a result, they plus the half-tribe of Manasseh asked to remain outside the promised land. They saw with their eyes that this looked like a good place. This looks like a place where I can settle down and prosper. And they chose according to what they saw as opposed to what God had promised. 
and they did not enter fully into what God had for them. There was a little incident then. Moses confronts them. How can you quit on your brothers? And they said, no, we'll go in and fight. But when it's all over, uh, when, it, when the land is settled, we're going back to our land over on this side of the Jordan. And I wonder if this is a little bit of what Paul is talking about here. If we as Christians can in some way quit before we get there in our daily living. Uh, he says, I, I, I'm not settling down. I'm, I'm not taking it easy. I am pressing on. I am, I, I haven't, I haven't gotten to where, where God wants me. And, you know, on one hand, we might look at Paul and say, wow, how could you ever do anything more? Look at all that you've done. You've planted all these churches. You've well, we didn't, he didn't know it at the time. <laughs> uh, you've written all this scripture, uh, but, uh, you know, you, you are certainly uh, a, a big name in the church, right? What do you, what do you mean you haven't lay, got, gotten to what Jesus laid hold of you for? And he sees that whatever he does, even in the name of Yeshua here, is not even the goal. The goal is still ahead the upward call in Christ to be there in the end uh, to to be with Jesus and so that everything he does is motivated by that is the outflow of that you know when we are motivated by the upward call it leads us to want to live godly lives it leads us to want to be good wives and husbands and parents and children it leads us to want to share the gospel with others to to alleviate the sufferings of others, that upward call, not because we're trying to uh, impress God, but it's part of that upward call. It's part of obeying the commandments, the two great commandments, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the outflow of resurrection life in us, right? I sometimes, you know, we talk about Jesus is the Mayim Chayim, the living water, right? But you know, it's interesting. He says, uh, anyone who follows him out of that person will flow rivers of living water. That in some way, that life of Yeshua, that resurrection life that Paul's talking about here, now becomes a life-giving source as we continue to pursue him, as we continue to try and live into the resurrection and knowing him and the power of his resurrection, that life of Christ as we crucify ourselves, as he increases and we decrease, right? All of his life comes pouring out and it exerts itself in all of these wonderful ways that benefit and bless others. And why do we do it? Not because we want people to pat us on the back and say, oh, what a good boy you are. But because we want to pursue the prize of the upward call in Christ. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus. If it, if it flows out into, you know, think about Pat Robertson for a second. If it flows out into starting a TV ministry, praise God. I was just doing what God said. If it flows out into starting a humanitarian ministry like Operation Blessing, praise God. I was just doing what God said. I was pursuing God. And this is what he said do. If it, if it, if it turns out to starting a world-class university, praise God. This is what he told me to do. All of that was the outflow of the pursuit of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. And producing heavenly fruit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen. Well, 
That was a real stem winder there. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the other section that we spent some time talking about uh, is James chapter four, and in James four. It says this, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So there's a world of uh, conversation just in those, those verses. He calls them adulterous people. And uh, remember, James is talking to a Jewish crowd, and uh, they are particularly sensitive to this kind of language because adultery is used repeatedly by the Lord in discussing how his ancient people, Israel, have departed and gone after other gods. They have committed adultery. Okay, and so when he says, you adulterous people, that's the linkage that's in their minds. He is saying that we are chasing down idols. And that's really what we're doing. Paul says uh, covetousness is idolatry. And so here he says uh, you covet and cannot obtain. That, that's a form of idolatry in the new spiritual way of understanding things. You have put something in your mind ahead of God. Okay, so, so he says you adulterous people, don't you know friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose it's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And I want to just stop there for a second, make the connection back to our Parsha, and then we can come back to James. But here I think, the, you know, he, the, the central feature in, in what we're talking about is, uh, don't you know friendship with the world is enmity with God? And the connection to the Parsha here, I believe, is in uh, Numbers chapter 33. And this passage, uh, this chapter, uh, Moses has been uh, retelling the various stages of their journey. And now here they are about to enter into the promised land. And he tells them that they're going to have to go to war against the inhabitants of the land and drive them out in order to uh, secure the promised land for themselves. So in uh, chapter 33, verse, uh, well, let, let's start at verse 54. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe, give a large inheritance. To a small tribe, give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. Then verse 55 has a big but at the beginning. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. Now, the first impression might be the trouble that they cause is because they're going to keep fighting back and there's going to be this constant warfare and you're, you're going to have to be fighting them all the time and you're going to have to maybe lose some sons in, in battle. That's not what his concern is. His concern is 
The people in the land will entice them away from their God. The people in the land will cause them to chase after other gods. And in that way, they are thorns and barbs and create trouble for them. And we see that throughout the history of Israel. Then once they're in the land, this is what's happening to them repeatedly is they go after other gods. They see the way the, the locals behave. And let's, let's, let's be truthful. Uh, a lot of the way the locals behaved included uh, a lot of uh, sexual immorality and prohibited to the Jewish people uh, we're, they were commanded about uh, how to use sex properly within a covenant arrangement. Uh, but they watched the other nations around them who practiced all kinds of sexual immorality in their religion, in their gods, um, satisfying themselves, let's put it that way. And so that stuff, unless you are determined in following God, in obeying God, those things begin to look enticing. And they begin to look like, well, maybe I can dabble in this and nothing will happen. And they did that for, for decades, right? Uh, oh, nothing happened. And then some nation rose up and they were in trouble. And then, you know, the whole story of the judges is how, you know, they went after other gods. Uh, they, were, they were subjected to their, their authority. God raises up a leader. Uh, they cry out uh, uh, in repentance. God sends them, sends them a, a, a leader, and once they're delivered, the land has peace for X number of years, and then they fall into the same pattern. And it's this cycle of over and over and over again. And I think that's, that's the, 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 the picture that links us to James, this idea that we've been called out to follow God, but we keep being enticed by things that we see in the culture around us. This is what he's saying. You, 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 you fight over stuff. Um, you covet. Because of your passions, your passions, the things that you have not brought under control of the Holy Spirit, your flesh is really what he's talking about. Uh, those, the, the, the Greek word is where we get our word hedonism, your, 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 your hedone, your, your passions, these things that the flesh desires, you are giving into those things. It goes back to what you said about Paul and thou shalt not covet, you know, that it's a matter of the heart. And it says mm -hmm. right there, and you covet something and cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. And, you know, uh, it's about, it says uh, later, it says God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Right. I mean, we talked about that. You know, he's not going to quit until God is not going to quit on us until he's perfected us. Yeah, I wanted to uh, get to that point. Just maybe think for a minute or two. What is friendship with the world? Uh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Mm -hmm. And you think about the ways that the world has to invade our space when we least uh, even, even are looking for it, it still can creep in. You were talking about how Facebook can get at you and you're not even trying. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
How many of you have experienced this where you start watching a TV show and it looks like it's going to be great in three, four, five episodes? Hey, this is pretty, pretty good, pretty tame. And then all of a sudden by episode seven or eight, by the eighth or ninth or tenth episode, they start to introduce a lot of sexual behavior, language that starts to skirt the, the, the boundaries of... of propriety and you go wait a minute what just happened and they drag you in uh, there's there's just so many ways that we are susceptible if we don't have our guards up amen um, as, as sexual beings we have to say that that is a very strong power and if we are married, then we are called to a level of purity between husband and wife that can be violated uh, so quickly uh, when we become emotionally involved with, with people who aren't our wives. And this goes the other way for, for women, you know, men who aren't your husbands. Uh, we can be enticed through our eyes. We see someone who looks good and we begin to entertain thoughts in our minds. Um, there's the signs that flash you know the lottery is up to 880 million dollars um there's so many different ways the world has to come into us um and and the the internet and social media compound that magnify that exponentially right so we really want to be serious-minded i think uh, about this idea of worldliness or friendship with the world and, and, and be honest with ourselves about um, this TV show, this movie, uh, this relationship. Uh, is this something that is pleasing to God or is it an enticement to my passions? Is it going to put me in a place where ultimately I am putting this in a place where God should be? And that's that's what I think this passage is calling us to, to be serious about and to, to really think about. Uh, and I don't want to be a downer here because uh, it it gives us the answer. What you're saying, God yearns over us jealously, right? He I yearns mean, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He gives more grace. And so that comes back around to where where is the place that we're going to put ourselves he says, humble yourselves. That is a, a willingness to take the low position. God is on high, I'm down here. When we do that, he gives grace to the humble. If, if we're going to shake our fist at God and say, I know better, this isn't going to hurt me, he opposes that. But he gives grace to the humble. God, I can overcome this because your grace is going to go to work in me. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so this connects to those first few blessings in the Beatitudes. 
Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. And when we come to that place of mourning over sin and humble ourselves before God, then we come to a place of real joy and rejoicing because grace goes to work in us and God, it says, exalts us. He lifts us up. He takes us out of the miry clay and sets us on the rock to stay, right? That's it. Um, you know, we want to we be encouragers here at the end and just to say, following God is serious business. Our God is a consuming fire. But it is a gracious business because he yearns jealously over those who are his. Have you been named with the name of Christ? Has God put his name on you as you accepted him by faith in Yeshua? If so, then you are a son or daughter of the living God. And what he says is he's going to discipline you. That's what we find in Hebrews. He wants to shape you through discipline to be more and more like Yeshua. And you say, why, why is that? And we say, well, even Yeshua, it says in Hebrews, learned obedience through suffering, through the discipline of the Father. The Son learned what it meant to be obedient. Before he took on a body, he didn't know anything about being obedient. It wasn't part of uh, his eternal operation as the Son of God. But the incarnate Son now must learn obedience through the things that he suffered because... As God, it was within his power, at least, to say no to being nailed to a cross, to say no to rejection. But as the son of the living God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so we are called also, as we suffer, as we mourn, as we weep, to enter into that low place of learning through God's discipline, the righteousness of God, allowing the Spirit to produce the holiness of God. And as we do, he turns our mourning to joy, our sorrow to laughter. He makes our low place his high place. You know, he calls us to find refuge in uh, the God of Jacob, our misgav, our fortress. And that idea there is... Uh, in battle, the, the place of, of power is the high place where you can shoot down at the enemy. And that's the word there. He says, I'm your high place. I'm your high place. So we want to invite you to, to believe in Yeshua. He gave his life for you that you could be forgiven of your sins. He gave his life for you that you could be adopted into God's family. But crucifixion wasn't the end, resurrection was, and ascension was, and honor and glory and authority and power and all of those things that he shares with you if you have come to believe in him. We want to invite you to put your faith in Christ. If you have already trusted him uh, to be your savior, we are inviting you to keep walking with him by faith, to keep on submitting to God, to keep on resisting the devil, to keep on sorrowing over sin because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to know the joy of that cleansing, to know the joy of that right standing with the Father that nothing can shake. We invite you to become one new man in him. Even as we are One New Man Ministries, we're thankful that you joined us. And we hope that you will join us again 
next week. Uh, you can look for us on your favorite podcast platform uh, under One New Man Ministries. Thank you. God bless you. May you have a wonderful week in the Lord.